You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Scripture this evening comes from Exodus chapters 36 and 40. Bezalel and Oheliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution. I'm sorry, we're going to skip to chapter 40. I knew I would do that, guys. I practiced. I swear. Uh, This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected a tabernacle. He laid its bases and set its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of the meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet, When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and we now acknowledge and declare to you that we need you. Uh, I need you now. Uh, to speak your words. We pray that um, anything that is of you would sit well in your people, would change and transform hearts. Anything that is not of you would be quickly forgotten. God, we need you now in this time as we gather together as your people under your word. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This evening is a torch night. If you are a fourth through sixth grader and you want to think through and wrap up Exodus together with Caleb and Emily, you can Follow them on out of here. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd, I'd love to after the service. Uh, we do this torch thing once every three weeks uh, for these young kids to not only 
be able to think through and consider God's word together, uh, but also be with us in this gathering for two-thirds of the year. Uh, but we are almost here. Guys, we have, uh, we're going to finish the book of Exodus, which we started way back in April. And some of you may feel like we have been in bondage or wandering in the desert for many, many months now. But this has been a many months journey that has been food for my soul. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, but back in April, when I was introducing this book, I warned us of our tendency uh, to make ourself the gravitational center of this book. In fact, the gravitational center of any book of the Bible that we may read. Uh, which then, if we make ourselves the gravitational center of Exodus, then, we, then this basically becomes no different than how we might apply um, any morality tale, how we might apply Aesop's fable or something, or how we might pl- apply uh, this book of Exodus. This Exodus story, though, is a story in which God has acted in history, in which God has done something and he has saved a people. And so we've often thought about, over the past many months, how we can not apply Exodus to our lives, but about how we can apply our lives to the Exodus, about how our small lives, very, very smallly, that's a word, uh, very smallly, apply to this huge cosmic story. We've also considered how Exodus is like a huge rock that gets dropped into the middle of a lake. The, the lake of God's story of redemption, of salvation. And this rock then carries huge ripples, huge ripples, almost waves backward in time through the Joseph stories of Genesis, through Jacob, Isaac, all through the Abraham stories. The Exodus keeps going back through Babel and Noah and all the way to the garden, through the fall in Genesis 3, through creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We'll, we'll even see some Genesis 1 and 2 themes tonight. But then, in the same way that the ripples can go backward in time through the biblical story, the the ripples even continue forward. Not in just how the narrative keeps going and unfolding, but in a replay and in a reconsideration of the Exodus story in Joshua and Judges and David and the kings through Israel's new slavery and bondage in Babylon and then their new Exodus coming back to the land and the prophets, and the ripples just keep building and building and building in momentum, and they are then growing waves that then crash on the shores of Bethlehem. When a new Moses, under threat from a wicked king who is also seeking to murder a generation of young boys to keep him from delivering this people, this new Moses brings a a new people, a new law through a new Passover, and this new Moses even himself becomes the lamb. He delivers his people from an even darker slavery and oppression. He leads them through a new wilderness on their way to a new land in the settled peace of God's presence. Uh, that's Jesus, by the way. If, uh, just slam that in your face if you're new to the Bible. Uh, the ripples of the Exodus story are just thrown out in all directions in the biblical story of God's redemption. But... We're not quite done yet. Uh, In many ways, the end of chapter 35 through chapter 40 uh, are just kind of tying up the ribbon on the Exodus. But in other ways, 35 through 40 are the entire point of this book so far, that God frees his people to devoted service to him. And yet, as we've already considered, the Exodus story then even continues past chapter 40 and on. So tonight, we're going to walk through these last chapters in just two sections. Uh, building God's worship, and then God's worship built. 
moving towards something and then looking back on it. So, first of all, in building God's worship, last week we saw Moses come to the people and ask for their voluntary, for their responsive, and for their cheerful contributions to the building of the tabernacle. God doesn't just send a floating tabernacle to descend down to the people that they might, be, uh, they might enjoy him. Instead, he invites his people into cooperating in this project of filling the earth with his glory. We thought about how God doesn't just want there, doesn't just want our money, but he wants our hearts. He wants our worshipful hearts. And oftentimes, he knows that the road to our heart comes right through our wallets. But tonight, we're going to see that God also doesn't just want there and our worshipful and generous hearts. He wants our worshipful hands. He wants the people and our contributing, serving, and generous skills and work. We've already met Bezalel and Aholiab back in chapter 31, but just by way of reminder, uh, Bezalel is the very first person in the Bible that we read about that is filled with the Spirit of God. We might have thought it was like Abraham or uh, some other big character, but instead it's just this largely forgettable guy that you may have never heard of, Bezalel. Unless... You'd like to say, though, he might not be the first person who's filled by the Spirit of God because you want to make the argument that Adam was when he receives the animating breath of God in Genesis 2. And in fact, that wouldn't be a bad move to make because the biblical authors take such great care to make connections from Adam to the building of and the working of the tabernacle and the temple. The language of Adam that is used in Genesis 2, that Adam works and keeps the garden, is the same uh, language and the same words that are used over and over and over again of how the priests work and keep the temple throughout the Old Testament. And so, like Adam, God animates, he directs, he guides his creative temple workers, Bezalel and Aholiab, to build God's worship, to build the place of God's presence with his people. So Moses says in chapter 35, verse 30, he says, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. Now again, God doesn't give the people, just from heaven, uh, these perfectly cut gemstones or these wonderfully articulate carved pieces of wood. Actual human beings have to work for hours and hours and hours on these things with their hands, carving this wood, weaving these linens. They have to break sweat and they probably have to cut themselves as they work. Real blood uh, that is poured into the building of God's tabernacle. And while these two were the likely artistic leaders, they were like the job foremen, there are others. We don't know how many are working with their hands, but I'd imagine their teams or their, their team or their teams were like substantial. This is a massive undertaking that these workers are now beginning to build this tabernacle. And yet, the way that these craftsmen and workers are, uh, approach the job is described in exactly the same way that the people brought forth financial contributions before in chapter 30, or chapter 35. We can read in verse 2 of 
chapter 36, and Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. Everyone whose heart had stirred them. This is the exact same language that we had read last week of everyone whose heart was stirred uh, to bring and contribute. These men and women are generously giving of their time and their skill, not just their money. And I did say women, not just men. I only mentioned this passing in passing last week, but women are specifically commended for their contributions, for their work, especially in verses 25 through 29 of chapter 35. Women are taking time and effort in their weaving, in their spinning of fabrics and of wools. This isn't to say necessarily like there are some masculine jobs and there are some feminine jobs to be done, but that the service and the contribution of every single Israelite, man and woman, was vital to this operation. Generosity with specific and particular skills that individual people possessed was needed for this entire group of people to be what God intended for them to be and for them to do what God intended for them to do. Men, women, individuals, groups, they were all indispensable to this work. Now, what does this have to do with us? Should we just say, like, what are the lessons that we can learn? What are the timeless truths and principles that we can now pull and pluck and maybe apply to our lives or something? Or should we rather ask, what was God doing in and through this particular people? What has he done beyond this group of particular people through the cross of Christ? How do we now fit in the same story of redemption that continues from these pages? Well, like we considered last week, we are no longer building a tabernacle. We no longer need a physical building or a place to meet with God. Rather, Jesus himself came and he tabernacled amongst us. And now by his spirit, he dwells not in a tent or a building, but within his people. And yet the work of the church is the same. The work of the church is to build up the worship of God, to build itself up in love. As individual temples of the Lord, Christians then even build ourselves on top of each other into something declarative to the world, into something useful to the world. Useful in the sense that God uses churches, God uses churches like the prongs of an engagement ring, and that it, it holds, it protects, it displays the beauty of the gospel of Christ to the world around it. The church is not the diamond. The church just holds, protects, and declares the beauty of what God has done. The gospel of Christ is not merely intended for personal salvation. It's not just meant for your salvation. It's not just meant for personal meaning. It's not just meant for personal contentment, though those are wonderful side benefits, incredible personal side benefits. But the gospel is intended to save a people, to act as the prongs of an engagement ring. And if the contributions and work of the people was indispensable toward the worship of God in this old covenant through Moses, then how much more is the work of this people on this in this new covenant of Christ, how much more indispensable is our work when God has given the priesthood not to just a few select men descended from Aaron of the tribe of the Levites, 
but God has given the priesthood to every single human being, man and woman everywhere that is professing their faith in Christ. The priesthood of all believers is a doctrine that we as Baptists hold very dearly, that there is now no divide in the work of the church between clergy and, la- clergy and laity. There is no divide between paid and professional Christians and unpaid voluntary Christians. There are no priests any longer on this side of the cross because we all come equally through our one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? The role of the pastor is a shepherd. That's what the word actually means. But we shepherds, me and Clint and Kyle and Ryan, we are under shepherds. Pastors are not set apart categorically, but we are sheep ourselves, leading the other sheep as we follow the shepherd, Jesus, the chief shepherd. And this understanding is exactly what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 4 when he's describing the church. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do all of the work of the church since they are the ones that get paid. If you don't know Ephesians 4, that's not, I just made that up. That is not what Paul says. Uh, He says, this is what Paul says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Church members are not in the stands watching pastors, watching missionaries, not watching uh, small group leaders and like the really serious-minded Christians doing all of the work. They're not spectators in the stands watching the serious Christians or the paid Christians uh, playing the game on the field. When you become a Christian and you become a member of a local church, you put on the uniform and you run out onto the field yourself. This brings all of the difficulty, this brings all of the danger, all of the risk of playing the game, but it also brings all of the thrill and the glory of the, participa- uh, the, per- <laughs> the participation. Risk, risk when you, when you join this game. But we might also think about pastors as coaches. What do coaches do? They, they lead, they prepare, they instruct, But pastors are also player coaches. They are participating on the field alongside the rest of the team. And so, like last week, this is where we get real practical again. If the tabernacle of God's presence is no longer a physical tent somewhere moving around on the Arabian Peninsula, but the tabernacle of God's presence is rather his people, how should we be building up the place of his presence. How should we be building up this church? How should we be building up each other as individuals together? This is a fundamental change in how we view nearly everything else in the world. We tend towards thinking about everything else in the world as an economic endeavor. Do I get more benefit out of this than loss? So, We think about things as opportunities to bring value to myself. So if I think this movie will bring me entertainment and I want to be entertained in this next two hours, then I will watch this movie. If not, I won't. If I think that I like the people at this party or this get together, 
and I have nothing else to do that will bring me more entertainment than being with them, then I'll go and hang out with them for an hour or two or three. Even in the things that we might not totally like in the moment, but we like the payoff on the other side. We maybe don't like the job that we have right now. It's not particularly thrilling in the day-to-day, but we do like the paycheck that it brings me every two weeks or once a month or whatever. We don't like the pain of working out in the moment. We don't like the pain of running and really exerting ourselves physically, but we like the way it makes us feel later on in the week or look later on in the week. But church membership is in a a totally different category than that. In the same way that God has moved toward me, in the same way that God has cared for me, serving me in the life and death of Christ, my way of thinking for you ought to just get flipped on its head. Not as you as a means to serve me, not as you as a means to bring me fulfillment, but in how I can meet your needs, in how I can be some small means of fulfillment in your life, of pointing you towards life in Christ. And like we thought about last week, the church is certainly more than this hour and a half gathering. The church literally, though, means the assembly, the the gathering. The church is more than our weekly gathering, but it is certainly not less. And yet we can often treat these gatherings as optional add-ons to our already busy lives. If we've gotten our work done this week, if we've um, studied well, if we've gotten all the projects around the house done, if we're in a good headspace on Sunday afternoon, not too stressed out, then totally, I, can, I like being here on Sundays. It's a good thing. I, I recognize that it's good for me and good for others for me to be here. But if not, if there's a lot still to do by the end of the weekend, if I'm not in a great headspace and really stressed out, then it's no big deal. But regular church attendance is one of the means that God has given to be vital for your life to be vital for the way that you reach the end, the way that you are growing and persevering throughout your life. We've said over and over again that you can only backslide so far in six days. And Christians have always known this. As recently as 20 years ago, American Christians would consider themselves to be regular church attenders if they attended a church gathering or meeting three times per week. Now, we... As at Christ Church, we don't have a Wednesday night or a Sunday night Bible study for you to attend uh, three times per week. We do have our gospel community gatherings. But the main Sunday gathering for American Christians, once upon a time, was a non-negotiable. Now, American Christians consider themselves to be a regular attender if they are at a gathering three times per month. With the majority of American Christians attending a church gathering less than twice a month, which doesn't, I mean, that sounds pretty good, like two out of every four weeks. That's, that's really good, especially compared to some of my friends that only come to church like once or twice a year. But two out of every four weeks is half the year that we are saying, you know what, I actually don't need this. It's actually not an important part of my life. As if We were training to train or run a marathon a year from now, and we just decided we would train half the time that we, that some of our coaches or our friends who have already run marathons say that we should train. 
It's kind of like we tend toward treating these Sunday gatherings as a class. Like if you're in a college class, especially a big one, it really doesn't matter too much if you miss it. Very few people will actually notice that you're not there. Sure, it'll make the exam a little harder uh, in a couple weeks if you've missed several classes, but you can get your no- the notes from your friends um, and, you know, not a huge deal. Or like a CrossFit or a Pilates class or something. Like you might not feel like going that regularly. If you skip a week of classes, yeah, it's a little bit of a personal loss. And it's really not that big of a deal. But this gathering is not a class. This sermon is not a TED talk or even like a lesson. Theologically, we are convinced that this entire gathering is an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. An encounter that does not happen on your own or by just listening to a podcast. Gathering and worshiping with his people confronted by Jesus, beholding Christ as we hear from him audibly in his word preached, communing with each other and with him together at the table. This is indispensable part. This is indispensable to our lives as Christians. Yesterday I read someone say, the most significant thing happening this weekend, the most significant thing this weekend is, the, is that millions of Christians who will be gathered with their local churches across the world, world declare that Jesus is exactly the one he claimed to be. This, what is happening right here, right now, is the most significant thing this weekend in the entire universe, and I assure you, in your life. Now, that's not because I have some like heightened, uh, estimated view of my own self or how like, good of a preacher I am or something. I am not. You can find better preaching, I assure you, in this city alone, much less online. But this, together, gathered as his people, is a weekly tabernacle exercise. We are building the worship of God here, in ourselves and in each other. Not just in the songs of worship that we sing, but we are building vessels. We are building people who are more purely, more passionately, more ongoingly worshiping the Lord with their whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the people that are doing that, the people who are building, doing the building in this room is not just Matt with a guitar or Clint or me up front. On, some, on Sundays, some of us do build God's worship by playing leading in songs of worship. Some of us do that by standing up here and leading and preaching. But still others do that by getting here early, by setting up these communion elements, by putting the flags outside for some visitor who might need to meet our great God also. Some of us miss the service altogether once every five or six weeks, sitting out at this desk over here, making sure that this building is safe and secure missing this service altogether once every five or six weeks, like Caleb and Emily hanging out with the fourth through sixth graders. Most of you in this room who are hanging out with the younger kids in Christchurch Kids. Like, you want to talk about building the worship of this church? My own children are learning and growing of our great God every single week through your care, through your building of this church. 
of your serving the families of this church. Many of you are serving in two, even three of these rotations of hospitality and music and security and safety. And you are doing so happily, willingly, and cheerfully because of your love for God's settled and growing presence amongst his people. And those kinds of folks that you might see cheerfully and regularly and ongoingly and just happily serving, those are the kinds of folks that you just want to start to follow. You want us to observe and say, What's, what is it about them? That kind of cheerful, sacrificial generosity with time and with their hands, that's a symptom of something. That's a symptom of their deep and great health in Christ. Ask them, why are they like this? Follow them in the way that they are pursuing Christ in their Bible reading, in their prayer life, the way that they spend their free time and the discipline and habits they've built or formed over time. You don't just stumble into holiness. You don't just stumble into joy. You don't just stumble into generous and sacrificial generosity. So ask God to change your heart so that it might look more and more like Rabo Richardson's. Ask God that he might change your heart and the way that you serve so that it might look more like Michelle Stevens or Stephanie Bastaros and just how they are just giving and giving and giving of their time. If I am not that generous with my time, why not? What might I do? How might God move to change my heart in these ways? And again, just like last week, this is a sermon of just like intense commendation. This is not a sermon of guilt. I could have like listed off dozens and dozens of names just now of folks who are just so all in to the building of the worship of this church. In regularly chatting with and hanging out with other pastor friends in town and around the country, what we got going on in this church, it ain't normal. And I am so thankful to God for the supernatural work that he is doing amongst us as his people and how we are loving him and how we are loving and serving each other. The thing is, we just want more and more and more of it. We want more and more of it individually in our own hearts deeply, and we want more and more people to get in on it. And so, in Exodus 35 and 36 and 37 and 38 and 39, the people build and they build and they build and they build. They build with joyful obedience. They are building God's worship, but then they eventually finish it. In chapter 39, verse 32, we read, Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. They did it. So now, secondly, let's consider God's worship built. If you're reading straight through Exodus, it can be tempting to think that this book could have really used an editor. Like, all of the stuff in chapters 35 through 39, like, man, I already, I already read this in chapters 25 through 31. Like, word for word. Like, it's like somebody just, like, ancient Near East kind of, like, copy-pasted and just put it all in. I don't know how you do that. 
millennia ago, but they did. But that's the point. This is word for word. The people have received the word, and they are building exactly in the way that God wants. Ten times in chapter 39, as they are making the priestly garments, we are told that everything is being done as the Lord commanded Moses. Maybe you heard Mark say that, and it's like, yeah, we get it. As the Lord commanded Moses. But that is the point. Again and again and again. In chapter 39, verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. If back at Sinai with the golden calf scene, the people were quick to disobedience. Here, they are quick to joyful obedience. And again, taking us back to Genesis 1, a new work of recreation has just been finished. In Genesis 1, 31, we read that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And here, we read in verse 42, chapter 39, Moses saw all that the people had made, and it was just as the Lord had commanded. God is seeing all that he had done. Moses is seeing all that the people had done. And in both passages, then blessing follows. God blesses Adam and Eve. Moses gives blessing to the people. God will dwell with his people as they are working in his service. But here's the thing. We've come a long, long way since Exodus 1. But in Exodus 1, we find the people in slavery. They are enslaved. They are doing hard work in the service of Pharaoh. They're building for him. But if we could like zoom out with chapter 1 and chapter 40, has anything really changed? Like the location has changed. They're no longer in Egypt. But what are they doing? They're now building in service, but just for a different master. They're doing the exact same thing that we found them doing in Exodus 1. They're, sure, they're free now. They're not slaves. Well, yeah, I guess. Like, God gives them the freedom to contribute or work according to their willingness and their generosity. But let's make no bones about it. They are God's servants. And our English word, or words, can be, make this a little softer, like servant sounds a little softer than the word slave. But in Exodus 1, we read about the kind of hard slave work that the Egyptians force upon Israel. The Hebrew work is avad. This is labor work or slave work that they are doing. But then later, when God, through Moses, comes to Pharaoh over and over and over again to tell him to let the people go, what reason does Moses give to Pharaoh? Why should Pharaoh let them go? Well, he says that they might serve me, the Hebrew word avad, that they might serve God, the same word that they are presently doing in Pharaoh's service. And you want to know how our English translator, translators often translate this word avad? It's worship, that they might come and worship me, that they might come and do hard slave work. And that doesn't really set well, sit well with us as Americans, right? Like, we do not like this, if we're being honest. Theologically, 
We like the idea of God coming as our great liberator, of bringing freedom, our redeemer who purchased us from the slavery of sin, from the bondage of our false worship, maybe even perhaps the bondage of our bad habits or something. But, especially as Americans, the idea of moving from one form of bondage to another, like this, does not sit well. And yet, this is exactly what God has come to do. The good news of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel, is not in what God has saved us from. That's true. That is good news. But the better news of the gospel is what God has saved us to that he has saved us to living a life as a devoted worshiper, a life of what Paul will over and over and over again unashamedly call himself to be a slave of Christ. That's not a bad or oppressive thing for him, but living in devoted service to the good shepherd is the freest, is the safest, is the most contented place that Paul could ever imagine living. And this is where Israel finds itself here in Exodus 40. Living now into and unto his service. We often sing this line in the song, uh, To Christ the Lord let every tongue. We sing, Had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be thine. Which is a play on another quote from another from an American evangelist from a century ago, where he wrote, "If I had a hundred lives to live, they should all be at Christ's disposal." I wonder, though, like if we were really being honest in our heart of hearts, if we had a thousand hearts or a hundred lives, how many of them we would actually give to Christ? How many we would actually want to keep? and to live for ourselves, for our own desires. But Christ Church, beloved, a hundred lives out of a hundred is the best place to be with Christ. A hundred lives out of a hundred is the way of life and love and peace, a life lived in devoted, worshipful bondage to God is the way of joy. A hundred times out of a hundred. A thousand times out of a thousand. But maybe I don't feel that right now. Maybe I don't actually believe in my heart of hearts that a hundred out of a hundred, a thousand out of a thousand, is actually good and right. Oftentimes, I don't believe that. Life is hard. Individual days are hard. If you've been reading the Read Scripture Plan with us, you know that many of the Psalms that we've been reading over the past month and a half, have not been like Hillsong concerts of like, yeah, and power, and victory. They've been of pain, suffering. But ask David, over the course of his life, how many lives or how many hearts he would live or he would give to the Lord? I think he would say, all of them. All of them, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not some of the time, not in some of the lives, but all of the time. And I've shared this with you before, but John Piper says, I'm astonished at people who say that they believe in God, 
but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. Brothers and sisters, God has saved us apart from anything that we have done. It is by grace through faith and not by our own doing, so that none, none of us may boast, but we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let us devote ourselves to the Lord. Let us devote ourselves willingly and freely to further bondage, further slavery to Christ. It is the best place to be. Let us devote ourselves to meeting together here every single Sunday. Let us devote ourselves for our individual good and for our mutual good to be with each other in our GCs and throughout the week. Let's devote ourselves to knowing God through his word. Let us devote ourselves to knowing him through prayer. And not just in praying for the things that we need, but in praying for one another. Let us devote ourselves towards singularly devoted tabernacle work in the building of the worship of God through this church. In chapter 40, verse 32, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. He finished the work. The work of the tabernacle was finished, but the story of the Exodus is not. Presumably, after Moses and Aaron come back out, we get this, these last five verses of this unbelievable book. Let's reflect on these last five verses, beginning in verse 34, and then we'll close the book on this thing. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here we are at the end of Exodus, and God is dwelling at the very center of his people. They are once again moving toward the land, and yet there is a problem. His presence comes and goes. And even when it comes, Moses himself cannot be in the full presence of God now. The glory of God is with the people, but it is outside of the people. How will the people be able to do the tabernacle work in devoted, singular service to God? We're left hanging in this second scroll, scroll of the Pentateuch, this first five books of the Bible. Like we, we roll up the scroll of Exodus and Moses is like outside of the glory of the Lord. The questions of Exodus then keep going and are then answered as we unroll the scroll of the next book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the central focal point of the Pentateuch. And Leviticus 16 is the central focal point of that book in which we read about the Day of Atonement, the mountaintop of the Pentateuch, where God provides a lamb to live and die for his people, to absorb the sins of the people and to cleanse them for pure access to God and for pure worship unto God. The stone is dropped here in Exodus, and the ripples are growing and building, and it will crash into a new Moses, a new Adam, the God-man, the Lamb of God, 
who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the story in which we are living today is the same story. The same story of God come to save a people for devoted service to him. But even that story is building towards consummation. It is building towards a finality in which the people here don't get to experience a finality. We look forward to finality also. So let's wrap up Exodus tonight with the way that C.S. Lewis wraps up the very end of his seven-book series of the Chronicles of Narnia in the amazing book, The Last Battle, when Aslan the Lion is speaking to the children who have followed him and have served him and have loved him. And Lewis writes this, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at least, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Our great God, Trinity and unity, unity and Trinity, gracious and eternal Father, we pray that we might understand, that we might feel, that we might experience and know the weight of your glory, the intensity of your holiness and your love. Lord Jesus, our King, we pray that we might understand what you accomplished in your people these millennia ago in Egypt that we might know and then center our lives around your saving gospel in which you have freed us from our sin, from our bondage, that out of sheer grace and intense love, you might covenant yourself to us, that you might free us to devoted service. O Spirit, we pray that you would animate, that you would guide, that you would direct us more and more each day, that we might walk by your wisdom and love as we continue this pilgrimage home. Grow us, we pray, more and more into a people who will love you with a more singular passion and to love each other and the world beyond with a more devoted compassion. Shape and fashion us, Lord, we pray, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.